This is Aliens and Artists, part one of our conversation with Jeremy Johnson. I'm your host, Stuart Davis. Jeremy is an editor, writer, polyphonist researcher, and president of the International Gene Gapser Society. He's had numerous entity encounters beginning in early childhood. I had a particular interesting series of encounters, as far as I can recall them. They were waking encounters, or at least uh, stirring encounters in the middle of the night of seeing an entity in the room uh, on a number of occasions. And what interested me about this and maybe kind of reawakened my curiosity curiosity about what was happening was when I read Whitley Strieber in college and how he originally decided to change the name of his first book, his famous book, uh, Communion, from its original title, Body Terror, because that's essentially how I remember this happening. And it's why I've always, especially as a kid, telling other kids that like, there are things that can show up in, in your bedroom in the night and maybe they're aliens or maybe they're monsters. Because specifically, I remember the visceral experience of my entire body freezing up. Uh, and maybe I could go into it with you uh, just in terms of the process. And, and I recall this happening more than once, but essentially, I don't know, I'm four, five years old, get up out of bed, uh, get a little spooked, want to go sleep uh, in my parents' bedroom. And standing in front of me is a strange entity. And the visceral experience I have is really the memory of my entire body locking up, my heart racing, not being able to shout, right? And then that, that, that's the end of the memory. <laughs> so that was very early on. And I think just that experience, regardless of what it was, whether it was just an intense dream or some kind of strange uh, sleepwalking occurrence or who knows, um, that always, I think, just left me open to the possibility that there is an other, right? However, we explain and narrativize that other. And I think it's just sort of set me on a, on a path of being the spooky molder of my friends. For, so, so to answer your question, yes, the, the, the weirdness is certainly present in, uh, in my childhood and, uh, and growing up. And we could, we could certainly explore that as, as we go uh, further into this. Maybe we could plumb one of those encounters, because the first thing that I note in what you just related is that you were standing. Mm-hmm. You'd gotten out of bed. So not a case of conventional sleep paralysis. You were on your feet. Were there other details about the entity's appearance? Yeah. So as a kid, I used to say to my parents that it was E.T. from the movie E.T. Uh, but the actual appearance of it looked something like like E.T., but much thinner, wispier, and with eyes that were bigger than the entity in the film. And then to give you some like context here, I've always sort of tried to figure out how these things appear or, or why they appear in the way they appear to certain people. Uh, I was a big fan of that film as a kid. I watched it with my grandparents all the time. Uh, so it wasn't something that scared me, right? But after these experiences started to happen, my relationship with that film <laughs> and with whatever this entity was, is, um, began to change and it began to be a much more cautious relationship. I didn't really like watching the film after these series of experiences, but mm. yeah, um, it, it's almost difficult because it's such an early memory, right? But I, I remember the giant eyes and I remember the feeling of a, of a complete paralysis. And I remember uh, its mouth moving. It had a small mouth, like a slit for a mouth, which again, sounds not quite like the way the cinematic E.T. looks like, right? Um, dark skin, like in the film. Uh, and it would just be whispering something. And in that instant when this paralysis happened, I just had the sense that whatever it was doing, whatever it was chanting was part of this paralysis, right? Like that it was murmuring this thing was in a sense freezing me up, right? And of course then it, it, it blanks out and that's the end of the memory. <laughs> Um, but then, but then it began to show up just in terms of, uh, dreams, right. Encountering the entity in dreams and, uh, wondering if it would ever show up at night again, uh, setting up elaborate schemes as a child to try to find it, you know? So I, yeah, I, I think it certainly had an impact 
just on my um, <laughs> relationship to to the paranormal, my openness to these experiences and possibilities. How many of these encounters do you suppose you've had? And was it the same entity every time? It was. It was the same entity every time. And I would say there were probably three more that I can that I can remember. Um, one was very similar to that same experience, which is strange. You know, the getting up thing, like you mentioned, the standing up, it's not quite like a typical sleep paralysis. Um, and it's not like I really remember having a conscious decision to get up. It's almost as if it was, I was on autopilot in that sense. Um, yeah. And a few years later, which is, which is why, like, I kind of didn't write it off completely. Um, I, I was, I think probably around 10 years old. <laughs> it sounds strange to even say it because of how like odd it was. It was in the middle of the day, uh, with, I was with my family. We were uh, pulling out of the driveway and I said, oh, I have to go get my coat. So I run back into the house. I run to my bedroom. I pull, I open my bedroom door um, and I open the closet. And in the closet is this same thing that I saw as a little kid standing there. <laughs> and my visceral reaction to that was to slam the door and run back out. Good God. And again, middle of the day, and completely awake, got a really good look at it. It wasn't corner of the eye, made eye contact with it. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I don't know really, like I didn't at the time. I, I think with a lot of weird things that don't have a necessary um, story or continuity over a period of months of, of high strangeness, at the time I just kind of went, that was really weird. It didn't happen again uh, after that. So I just kind of sequestered that experience as one of those weird experiences that I couldn't explain, but it was there. <laughs> Having gotten a really good look at it, you're older, it's daytime, there's eye contact. Would you place it in the morphology of, say, Streber's hooded figures, the shorter mm. quasi-troll beings and his earlier experiences, or more like E.T. from the film? Yeah. Is there anything analogous in our entity lexicon, so to speak? Yeah, I, I, I think it, it resembles kind of both. Uh, whenever I read stories about, you know, traditional folk tales about goblins, I thought, okay, it's sort of like that. But the eyes were just, the eyes and the mouth, right? That They were so close to the more Streber-like encounter of the wispy entities, right? So it, it seemed to be, exhibit some elements of both in that it wasn't super tall. Um, maybe it was around my height at the time, so I don't know, I was just a kid, 10 years old. Um, I don't think, I don't remember it being taller than me. And it wasn't short and pudgy and really, really wrinkly, but it was sort of wrinkly. Um, so yeah, it was kind of an interesting combination of both. And I have no no real explanation for it. It hasn't really fit into the typical morphology of, of, of these entity encounters. But uh, again, yeah, it seems to be sort of straddling both kind of appearances. But I guess we were just deep diving into the weird uh, with you, and I shouldn't be surprised by that, Stu. Um, <laughs> but I do have one more experience that's a dream uh, yes. that I would love to share, because you mentioned robed entities. By all means, proceed, please. Okay, so this fast forward a few years later. I'm in high school, probably 15 or 16 years old. Uh, I have a very interesting dream. And that, you know, because of this happening so young, you know, this entity just would be a recurring appearance in dreams. You know, it could be a nightmare. It could be just a weird encounter with it. Usually I'm not very comfortable. There's a sense of that kind of body terror that I, that uh, Streber talked about. So these are always difficult dreams. Um, and it just became like, I've had different relationships with it, right? There are some where in the dream I go, I'm going to just like be funny with it and make jokes and try to, you know, uh, disarm the terror of the experience. And then there are others where I'm, where I'm just going, I'm just going to wake up. Right. Like, I don't want to deal with this. <laughs> um, and others still like this one is interesting. So the dream started this way. I am laying in bed 
And interestingly enough, and I'm only making this connection now as I'm talking about it with you, but there is that a murmuring voice, again, that murmuring, which is interesting, uh, a murmuring voice disembodied in, in this dream version of my bedroom, which is pretty much the same. And uh, my bedroom faces uh, down a hallway, a very short hallway, to my mother's bedroom. It's a very small one-story ranch growing up where I grew up. And um, everything's dark. It's sort of at night in the dream. And there's this murmuring that's going on for a while and kind of droning. It's almost I'm almost in like a trance state. And suddenly something clicks and the murmuring stops, the voice stops, and I kind of become aware of myself in the dream. Like, oh, that was weird. Who was talking? What were they saying? And immediately after that, the light in my mother's bedroom flicks on. I get up to go check it out, not really expecting much. I'm just in the dream state, just curious. And standing as I, as I enter the doorway and get a full view of the room and the light that had turned on on, on its own is that same giant-eyed entity standing there, a little taller than I remember it being, still not as tall as me, I'm about 5'7", and it's standing on the other side of the bed, the light illuminating its face. It's wearing, now I, I got a kick out of this because it's, I, I thought of thought of you and your, and your podcast, actually, when I was thinking of sharing this, it's wearing a hooded robe, all black, no sleeves. Its entire body is covered except for its head, its eyes, its face, right? Its eyes, rather than just being giant eyes that I remember as a child, are galaxies. And I am completely entranced in the reality of this being, which seems more real than the rest of the dream. It seems like a real encounter with it, right? It feels like it's really here again. And I get this sense that like, oh, you're back. It's been a while since you've showed up. And I don't know how long I'm standing there staring at this being with galaxy for galaxies for eyes. It seems like a long time and eventually it gets almost unbearable. Like there's this sense of awe and dread that's difficult to articulate. Um, and the dream again is this vivid. Its eyes have just these swirling galaxies in each eye. And eventually I turn away, I go, okay, it's been nice seeing you again. This is really intense. I want to get out, right? Very human reaction, I guess, you know. Um, so I, I veer to the right, right? I, I move away from the room in the dream. And as I'm moving away from this room, I step away from my mother's bedroom. And here's what gets interesting. I am suddenly back in my room. It's dimly lit, almost like it's, it's dawn. Um, and I'm floating in the middle of the room. I see myself on the bed and I'm just hovering there. And I realize that I'm not in my body, right? I, and I think to myself, is this an OBE, an out of body experience? And I just sort of float in this sort of, it feels very calm. It feels very spacious. And I, it's difficult to explain because there's no like, I can't look down, I don't have a head to look down, but I can sort of see that there is no arms and legs on me. I kind of have this panoramic vision of the room as it's dimly lit in the gray of, of, of dawn. And I slowly begin to float back down to the bed. And just as I'm waking up, because as soon as I float back to the bed, I open my eyes and the door to my bedroom closes. Now, as far as I know, I was awake watching that happen. It could have very readily been a dream. This out-of-body experience could have very readily been a strange dream. I don't know. But I get up. I get ready for school. Uh, everyone's asleep. So <laughs> that was the last time anything, any kind of intense high weirdness with this particular being um, happened to me, at least in, in the physical. God. I've had some dreams here and there since then, but nothing so vivid and intense and almost revelatory. Like, like it was revealing something of itself to me that I wasn't ready for as like a five-year-old who was terrified of the monster in the room, you know? Wow. How old were you on that last occasion? I, I, I'm guessing I was 16. So I was in high school. 
So there's about a decade of a timeline between the earliest memory of contact with that entity up until age 16? Yeah, yeah, I I would say so. Um, You know, again, like it it seemed to be more uh, more intensive in in youth when I was under 10 years old. Um, But yes, yeah, that, that this was sort of the the culmination of those experiences uh very glorious terrifying one but <laughs> it makes me want to dive in with you around how we have the experiences first we grow and developed we take up contemplative practices modes of inquiry and later in life we have acquired better tools and methodologies to unpack what occurred earlier in life mm-hmm. correct me if i'm wrong when i look at your life and work, that seems the case. A decade with many inexplicable contacts with this entity. With the benefit of maturity and sharpened perception, what do you make of these events now? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's such a loaded question. I There's so much to unpack in order to answer it, but I think maybe to, to, to simplify first, I guess I, I've come around to the sense that you know, there, there's this academic uh, tradition that I'm very interested in recently called post-humanism, and it doesn't really have anything to do with transhumanism, but it does have to do with kind of dislodging this fixation on on uh, having the humanist, modernist, materialist orientation towards the world and relationship to it, right? You know, the 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 idea that I would encounter something, a non-human intelligence, is not very unusual if you step out of that particular Cartesian worldview, right? There are many different, not only traditions, but, you know, living people today, of course, in indigenous communities, um, and of course, our own ancestors who had a very active and dynamic relationship with the non-human world, however we define that. Uh, working with spirits, interacting with particular kinds of intelligences that may, may never have been human. So when I look back at my own experience, I kind of wonder about um, not the not the necessarily the uniqueness of it, but the universality of it in that sense. That maybe this is something that you know our culture is not very well equipped to interpret and translate and to accommodate, but. Uh, it nevertheless is something that humans experience, right? And then even giving some more ontology to it, you could say, you know, that you could write it off as, well, I was a kid. These were just very visionary, imaginative experiences of a particular child who had a more vivid imagination and maybe did experience seeing something, you know, as some kids do. Even that, you know, like uh, referring back to your your chat with J.F. Martell or um, even thinking about what, you know, Jeffrey Kripal talks about in Mutants and Mystics in terms of uh, writing off some of these experiences in a purely materialistic sense, right? Like, okay, uh, maybe an alien abduction experience is temporal lobe epilepsy or maybe some kind of physical trauma generated these experiences in the brain. And Kripal says, you know, you kind of you kind of need that there's a kind of a doubleness to that right that like actually yeah maybe it is the trauma that opens you into these different states to be more receptive to them so that it is both right so i would say yeah maybe it has to do with a child being more imaginative more capable of experiencing the imagination and relating to it in a in a perceived physical way but it doesn't mean there's not another on the other side <laughs> right um <laughs> So yeah, that's great. So I guess I guess I want to. I, there's a certain narcissism in imagining it's just just the imagination. Like, what do we even mean by that? You know, I think you know. In the, this is something that Gepser writes about. Uh, Gene Gepser writes about in one of his um his earlier works, talking about um, narcissism in the imagination. And I would just love to read actually because I highlighted this note to share with you at some point. Um, as he says, uh, mirror always remains mirror. And he's talking about kind of you know, a 
are we just projecting ourselves and, and, and really just sort of playing with our own imaginations of things? Mirror always remains mirror and reflection always remains reflection. In the background, narcissist stands ready and will not find anything but self-love. But what matters is love that goes beyond ourselves. And what also matters is, is that the eye is not merely a counter mirror, that there be, that there be not merely acknowledgement, but a response. I just love that passage as a sort of, when we stare into the mirror of our own imaginations and have these kinds of experiences, are we just talking to ourselves or is there something beyond ourselves that's talking through this mirror, right? Is it just myopia or is there something actually whispering to you in the dark, you know, <laughs> or both? Really, it's like we participate in whatever this is, you know, and I guess that's sort of what I would generally sum up my worldview is, is that whatever these things are, sure, we participate in, in the, the conjuring of them in our lives and maybe the, the, the guises that they take, but there's still someone else speaking from beyond the mirror. We're not just talking to ourselves. Um, if that makes sense. Completely makes sense. Precisely in touch with the theme of this show. Binary has been in fashion, as JF related in earlier episodes of this show. Is it objectively real or is it subjectively generated? Mm -hmm. That reductionist move has been a fetish the last few centuries. Is it real or is it just our imagination? But there are subjective, objective, intersubjective, and interobjective facets to this enigma. What you just related about your deepening, allowing for a more nuanced relationship to the phenomena, mm -hmm. adds that vertical developmental axis as well. A more integral way of living the mystery. How do you feel like these non-ordinary encounters, be they in waking awareness, dreaming, lucid states, out of body, how do you feel they inform your creative life? <laughs> yeah, good question. I, you know, in, in some ways it's been, I think it's been very indirect in that just it, it helped set the stage for understanding the, <laughs> the poetic reality that we inhabit, that, that such things are possible and that obviously, you know, because this thing looked a little bit like a film that I had watched, right, that I realized there there is some kind of playful relationship between the human imagination and the real. And I think that has just sort of been, whether or not I was able to articulate it at that time, and I don't really think I, I, I could, but at least now I can, I can say that, that that has been sort of the setting for all of my explorations. I, I had a very, very passionate interest in, you know, just a, kind of a, like a, a, a covert interest in, in keeping abreast with uh, paranormal studies and weird events and the history of uh, paranormal studies in Western culture from like William James and the, the, uh, the American Psychical research society that, that popped up here in the States and the UK counterpart and just the whole history of our, of our culture's relationship with, with this, this other, um, other, it, it seems even, uh, to shortchange it, to call it a worldview. Um, but I think that helped me have more of an openness to what I would eventually begin to work on with, you know, studying integral, uh, getting very interested in some of these writers on the evolution of consciousness and Tehar de Chardin and obviously Gene Gepser, Ken Wilber. Um, and in another sense, I, I, I guess I've just always felt that, okay, you know, there is a strange gap between how things appear and how they are. And the human imagination plays an active role in that gap, right? So it's just always been a default. I don't know if it's directly... But it, so what? You know, it doesn't have to be direct. I think sometimes it's, it's, it's the indirect things that really, really move you in ways you, you, you kind of only discover much later, you know? So I would say indirect, but that's a good thing. There's often a delayed, almost time capsule quality to the way people's early anomalous experiences bloom later in life. Mm -hmm. Formative experiences lie dormant for years, decades, and then activate 
later becoming powerful developmental drivers. For instance, what did it mean for you to open the closet door that day and stand face to face with that entity in broad daylight? How such events exert influence on our lives may be akin to how a prism refracts light. When I see the 10-year-old Jeremy opening that closet to find that entity, I also envisage innumerable instances of Jeremy opening all kinds of closets and doors throughout life in all kinds of domains, realms, traditions, sociological, contemplative, academic. (laughs) I just... I just see you as a cosmic closet opener. <laughs> Do you feel that's a fair bow to draw, so to speak? I do, I do, and I actually take take pleasure in being described that way. Um, I think you know that when I told you about that kid um, <clears throat> at the end of high school who told me that I was basically that the spooky molder. Um, I, there, I think there is a certain enjoyment in opening doors and. Um, and I, I would even say this, like, again, I'm just thinking out loud, uh, responding to your, to your inquiry, but, you know, one of the themes, one of the spiritual themes that I have come to deeply appreciate through studying Gebser, particularly in, in, in Taoist literature and uh, writing, especially, is a, is a kind of, you know, it's, it's not so much the... <laughs> subversiveness of door opening uh, because I certainly enjoy uh, boundary crossing door opening liminality I love I love bringing that into the forefront so as, as a personality yes for me like I enjoy doing that and I think there's power in opening those doors especially when it's least expected you know just leaving certain doors open to create a kind of I know um uh, 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 what Jack Hunter calls it ontological flooding, but there's almost like an ontological draft by opening those doors that begins to sort of set in and, and really bother a paradigm, right? There's something coming in here that shouldn't belong here. Uh, and I'm very interested in those instances. I think those expand our sense of what is possible and who we are and what we are, right? So yes, like without without a question, yes, I, I like to open those doors. And in the spiritual sense, I, I feel like maybe a, a, as part of our own evolution, um, we're meant to open those doors eventually. And in a certain sense, what Gebser meant with his uh, he calls this the, the principle of diaphaneity is a kind of openness to the world in a way in which there are no more doors and boundaries that are not rendered translucent between the living and the dead or the other and the self. Not that those distinctions melt away. It's just that there's, there's an openness that transcends or transluces those distinctions that the human being is capable of actualizing. So, you know, even the whole idea, like, let's, let's just go back in, in cultural evolution for a moment and say, well, okay, you know, most human beings had some kind of animistic sense of the non-human world. We could even make arguments, as some scholars have done, that, you know, we had a, we had a better or perhaps more intimate relationship with the dead and our ancestors in different cultures and in our own pasts, et cetera. So those doors closed, didn't they? Aren't we sort of haven't we sort of walked away from those, the, those active relationships? And I would say like, to use this metaphor of doors opening and closing, stepping into materialism was stepping through a doorway as well, right? This is, this is kind of part of Gebser's uh, thesis that, that consciousness is always creatively exploring its own dimensionalities and what's possible. So materialism and inhabiting the body and inhabiting and, and cultivating a sense of separate selfness is a doorway to step through, right? So, you know, there's this kind of dynamic, creative folding and unfolding that I think consciousness does. But ultimately, I think that the, the metaphor, the theme of walking through these thresholds, it's a very kind of mythical metaphor, um, so that all doors become accessible to us at a sort of simultaneity, I, I think, I like to think there, there's a kind of excitement. There's a feeling of excitement in that. There's a sense of, like when I read Kripal's work or even, uh, you know, some of Strieber's work that they, that they have uh, done together in like supernatural 
which is a really interesting book. Um, there's this sense that we do need to kind of open the doors and let the draft in. And that that is a part of this integral realization, right? That the narrowed sense of materialism and self are about to be flooded. And the kind of human being that needs to be actualized in this emerging consciousness or intensified world is in us, right? We are capable of, of opening those doors. Um, it's not easy, but I think we can do it, or at least it's in us to do it. It, but it, it has to be a choice, like right in that dream. I, I stepped through that doorway unwittingly. But I think part of it is also this leap that we have to um, be willing to take. And that's not something you can force necessarily, even if it's happening to you. You can run away from it, you know. It's just going to make it harder on yourself. But, yeah, so I, I love that metaphor, actually, Stu, of, of, of the opening of doorways. It's, it's very beautifully uh, stated. I'm appreciating the parallel features of how in your dream experiences, out-of-body experiences, you migrated over thresholds, and how that's what many of these beings do, cross the borders, cross the membranes between realms, states. They appear in broad daylight, at the witching hour, <laughs> in dreams, lucid dreams, nightmares, astral travel, non-ordinary meditative, drug-induced states that interdimensional passport. <laughs> you brought up Streber and Kripal, both pillars for sure. This is, of course, Aliens and Artists. And Streber is kind of the quintessence of that coupling, Aliens and Artists. We actually did a segment on his implant and how it enjoins with his creative process, functioning like a search window in his awareness, almost like a ghostwriter. The recent book, Supernatural, was co-written by Kripal and Streber. And in Kripal's many works, he's so brilliantly maintained a symbiotic relationship with the confounding transrational nature of phenomena. Uh, Kripal's actually coming on the show soon. <laughs> I feel like Kripal and Streber have been integrally savvy without getting <laughs> integrally dogmatic. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, it definitely does. Um, but I, that, that kind of is, is um, it strengthens the ideas, you know, that like they really are kind of coming to this in their own way. And there's so much resonance, right? Especially with, I'd say, especially with uh, with Kripal's work, he has a whole study of um, Esalen, which is an excellent book, Esalen and the Religion of, of No Religion. But even Mutants and Mystics as, as a study of pop culture and the paranormal as as you know, kind of intimately linked with one another in the, in the personal biographical lives of comic book creators and artists and writers, um, which I highly recommend as well. Uh, there's this sense of what, you know, what he calls an, an evolutionary mysticism, right? He's very interested in how the imagination and science intersect with the, the, the perennial religious experience, which is highly strange and really difficult to pin down and deeply intimate, personal, erotic, you know, as, as, if, as you've mentioned already on this show. So there, there's this very kind of fleshy, embodied and disembodied way in which, you know, these experiences continue to happen. And it's creative, and it's imaginative. And it's always wrestling with the kind of um, parameters of the present. If it's science, then it's science fiction, right? Um, and I, I guess I guess for them, especially Kripal, um, uh, I, I appreciate how he brings in the imagination and ties it back to Frederick Myers and the whole idea of the imaginal being coined by Myers to talk about the imago, right? The, the, the uh, uh, what do you call it? Um, the moving into the adult metamorphosis phase of an insect, it goes through this imago, right? Like it's sort of a um, anticipation of its future form, its future morphology. And I love that idea. Um, it's a temporal idea. It's a sense of the past and the present and the future, all kind of intermingling in a way that isn't so, as we're saying, it, it isn't so direct. It isn't so straightforward. And I think that's, it's very fascinating. And I, I love, again, the synergy there between Kripal's work and our own geeking out about the evolution of consciousness and, and integral studies, et cetera. In some ways, we're kind of a case study for Kripal. And I'm hoping he does something about that one day, or maybe one of his students. <laughs> yeah. I love that you brought up Gebser and time. There's so much 
in contact with non-human entities that involves anomalous time experiences. Time dilation, missing time, gained time, the apparent ability of some of these entities to freeze time for a few people while it proceeds for others. We hear of experiencers being pulled out of a timeline and being placed in another one. You know, I left my body for a few moments, but I entered an adjacent reality where weeks passed in those moments. Then there's retrocausality, time loops by Eric Wargo being an example. So I'm curious about how the transrational is constituent in this weird time stuff. You're president of the International Gene Gebser Society. Mm-hmm. That's right. That's right. I don't know a ton about Gebser's time freedom, but I had been reading about it a bit, trying to contemplate how that possibly relates to the transrational in an integral altitude of awareness, let's say. I wonder if Gebser's time freedom has any insights for us on these temporal anomalies in contact events. Does that make sense? Totally. Yes. Yes. So I'm just inviting you generally to share what Gebser's time freedom may have to offer on these concerns. Sure. So this is both the most, well, it's the most interesting element, I think, of Gebser's contribution to integral thinking. Um, time, his commentary on time, his understanding of what it means, its complexity, its its manifold nature. Um, it has a diverse array of applications just in terms of, let's start with um, kind of the context in which he decided to talk about it. And he frames this within a kind of evolution of human consciousness in which these different, some readers may know this already and listeners, there's these different ways of being in the world, right? Each structure of consciousness in his history of our being human and this unfolding of consciousness has had a particular arrangement of perception, right? With space and time. So we encounter and our, our being in the world and what the world is, just even in terms of ontology, has shifted and morphed and dynamically uh, kind of rearranged and restructured itself over over the course of, of our, our being here on this planet. Um, he's not the only one who's talked about this. There's been a lot of interesting literature from, you know, the fun countercultural Ju- Ju- Julian James in the 1970s to um, maybe more, you know, uh, kind of contemporary work like uh, Ian McGilchrist talking about the left and the right brain and how our ancestors had a different kind of relationship to uh, the right side of the brain. So there's different ways to kind of look at this dynamic shifting um, uh, restructuration of our of, of human phenomenology, right? Like how we perceive time and space and ontology and like what the world is. So for Gebser, we are in the midst of this, as you mentioned, this emergence, but it's also a transition from what he called the perspectival world or the mental structure of consciousness, which is predominantly um, spatial, three-dimensional, volitional. And he has a fascinating study in the ever-present origin, just carefully documenting everything from poetry to the you know the evolution of language through etymology in the kind of construction of the egoic spatial self that moves around in three dimensions right that that is that is really in the world in the kind of modern sense of being in the world and having a, a sense of self in the way that we moderns have a sense of self it sort of coalesces over thousands of years um but what he says about our time is that this this is actually being disrupted. We're actually kind of upturning all of that. And this has happened many times before with these different structures of consciousness. And so what's happening now for him, he says, we're moving away from this three-dimensional spatiality into what he calls many different names, but generally speaking, a, a temporality, moving into time, not as a clock time, not as a measurable time necessarily, but time as duration, like uh, Berkson might talk about, time as intensification. So, you know, in terms of paranormal experiences, to just, to, you know, dovetail into them lightly for a moment, uh, the kind of strange dilations, expansions and compressions of time would be something you'd be very interested in. He was very interested in that um, in terms of literature in the 20th century, different artistic movements that were playing with time 
from futurism to Dali and surrealism, right? Dream time. He's very interested in how time became a preoccupation in the 20th and 19th centuries, an increasing theme, right? But he also believed, like, we could say this at the most uh, macroscopic uh, way, that time as a theme for modernity, for globalization, uh, was becoming an increasing crisis, that time would continue to press upon the consciousness of the moderns, so to speak, and become an increasingly um, difficult reality to bear, uh, a more complex reality to bear. We saw this in the 18th century uh, in terms of, you know, the discovery or uh, paradigm breakthroughs with Darwin and evolution, right? Deep time opened up. Uh, the sense that the human being is a transitional creature, right? That, that we are, there's mutations happening all the time that, you know, we used to be Australopithecus um, and we're going to be something else in the future, perhaps. This sense of movement and process and temporics, just even at a cultural level, was just erupting. And he even said that, you know, the innovations of the machine world, of technology, of ramping up, of uh, the feeling like history is happening at a faster and faster rate, both in a catastrophic way and in a kind of elative way of, of discovery and breakthrough and innovation. Um, we were kind of wildly being swung around uh, with the angel of history, right? Like it was out of control. And he says, you know, it's very interesting that we feel like time has gotten away from us because it has. It's, it's eluded and escaped our ability to capture it with this particular structure of consciousness that has mastered space, right? The Cartesian billiard ball Newtonian world um, that in some sense we still want to hold on to. And he believed, and this, he's writing this in the 1940s, that the kind of sociological and technological pressures that would manifest would continue to burst apart space in the same way that space burst apart the medieval, what he calls the unperspectival or mythical world, right? From Galileo to modern medicine to even the expansion of colonialism and sort of discovering the world as this material sphere, right? It's floating in the heavens, no longer the center of the cosmos. Um, so he's, he, he believed at that most macro level that time was the theme of the integral consciousness and that it was disrupting and bursting apart all of these older paradigms that are oriented around space. So that's the macro. But I think when we get into more, more, um, more intimate with your question on these kinds of experiences, um, Gepser understood, and you know, this is, I think, why he hasn't been completely embraced by secular academia. Um, he, he really did feel that this insight was a poetic one, one that was spiritual, one that you know, time could be concretely experienced by the human being, and that time was this manifold thing, right? That the past was somehow present in the present, but then also so is the future. It's almost as if somebody removed again, <laughs> opened those doors, right? We have a doorway to the past and a doorway to the future we think are, are shut. And those just start to creep open more and more. And the whole idea with the integral consciousness, right, or the integral structure um, is that time is this, uh, really difficult to articulate, but this manifold thing. Time is liminality. Time is duration. Time is directivity. It's clock time. But that's only one element. That's only kind of one expression, the most kind of provincial day-to-day -day waking ego kind of time. But we even as human beings move in and out of different states of liminality, you know, just as a sort of daily existence between waking and dreaming. So he saw time as this manifold thing, right? This manifold reality that would not fit within any kind of categorical, any kind of measurable rational system, but it could be lived, right? And he has this concept called verition, uh, which is for him a kind of not like knowing about something, but participating in its reality in an irrational sense, or you might say transrational. And time for him ultimately... Um, in the most intense, ten, intensified, open, radiant, spiritual way, he says, is time freedom, which he believes or, or, or articulates as a kind of spiritual originary presence, right? His book, The Ever-Present Origin. There is this, he calls it many different words, the plenum, 
right? As this sort of spiritual, creative, intensified presence that bring things forth. And when he begins to talk about this, it begins to sound more like, like Buddhism, you know, it begins to sound more like contemplative traditions in terms of what he's trying to articulate. And I think that's actually very correct, that he was tapping into a, a deep spiritual insight that if we become present enough, um, we don't just move into a pre-timeless uh, pre perfect state before the Big Bang, that origination is ever present, right? That that spiritual timelessness isn't so divided in a Cartesian way to not be over-involved with matter and time and becoming. It actually actualizes that. It's participating in it. And then we as human beings can also realize that participation in ourselves so it was a it was a deeply spiritual insight and um i don't know if that helps answer what time freedom is but it has to do with these kinds of experiences uh both contemplative and also anomalous be sure to catch part two of our conversation with jeremy johnson for more information on jeremy check the show notes august morning Chalfont St. Peter, in Buckinghamshire. Mary Weir observes a cigar-shaped craft over the fields near her home. The craft emits a beam of light, which appears to project images onto a low-hung cloud in the sky. She has ample time to retrieve implements and document what she sees. Numerous symbols and figures displayed on a billowing canvas. Mary would later tell BBC Radio in Oxford, quote, It was quite clear and distinct. Although the beam itself had a nebulous quality, I could see a series of symbols or signs thrown into relief by the beam, and I had time to copy them onto paper with a pencil in the light thrown from the craft. As I was copying them down, every tree, every chimney, every rooftop was as light as day itself, and the birds began to sing." End quote. When the beam vanished and the craft departed, the reverberation shook the structure of Mary's home. Two things to love about this account. First, in contrast to many high strangeness events, when all wildlife in an area goes completely silent, an area cricket can be heard. In this case, the wildlife in Mary's surroundings seemed to alight at the arrival of the craft. Second, Mary's illustrations of the symbols witnessed are in our show notes part of a massive release of files by the Ministry of Defense. For more, go to nationalarchives.gov.uk or check the show notes. Aliens and Artists is brought to you by The Liminal Muse, offering one-on-one -on -one work with me, Stuart Davis. Sessions include transpersonal hypnotherapy, death and dying, and creativity as a spiritual path. Go to theliminalmuse.com to book a session or check the show notes. You may have percepted that patrons luxuriate in lavish volcanic love. Their glinting eyes, a coruscation of joy. Their pursed pusses, poised for kisses from some invisible visage. Whence comes such vivacity and effervescent joie de vie? To put it plainly, Patreon people. A premium panacea of pulchritudinous pleasures. P -p -p Patreon. When I work up my inventions, I use rubber bands and